Hello, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Today is Monday, October 12th. I'm not sure 50 episodes was something I thought was possible when I started this podcast, but here we are now. So I want to pause and thank everyone who has been a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast since its inception. Thank you. Now, on to the next 50 episodes. Today's podcast features a discussion with Dr. Bonnie Kybers. And writing was a huge part of that. So my, my Miss Aola was my, you know, um, community college helper. She kind of guiding me back into learning how to be a student. And it, it changed the course of my life profoundly and saved my life, really. I mean, it's, I'm, it's not overly dramatic to say that. So I like the idea of being able to help other students. It's one of my, one of, something I'm always looking out for in first year writing is, you know, where are those folks who look like they're, you know, just about to slip through the cracks? We will hear more from Bonnie in a bit. I thought a lot about how I wanted to spend the introduction of the 50th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I came up with a few options for content and even considered a different format for the episode. But with the 2020 election just over three weeks away, I thought that the best use of my time would be spent imploring you to vote. We can see the polls. The quantitative figures show the Democratic ticket with a strong national lead. But it isn't enough. And we know this. We can share sentiments. We can talk about voting as a civic duty because voting is a civic duty. We must follow through. Make sure you have a plan, whether you're voting early or voting on election day, and make sure you follow through. Dr. Bonnie Lenore Kybers teaches writing, rhetoric, and digital media. She supports creative vision and composes reflective, rhetorically timely texts via digital filmmaking, installations, multimodal composing, and print. She makes short digital films, documentaries, and experimental pieces that hope to resonate as entertaining, provocative arguments for evolving scholarly scenes. Her current book is Cruel Altruism, Affective Digital Mediations Toward Film Composition, in the Hashtag Writing Series at the WAC Clearinghouse and University of Colorado Press. Kyberz's work appears in Kairos, a journal of rhetoric, technology, and pedagogy, Enculturation, a journal of writing, rhetoric, and culture, composition studies, college English, and other NCTE publications. I was specifically excited to talk to Bonnie about her work as a volunteer at the Sundance Film Festival. So look forward to that as you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Bonnie Kybers. You said you don't you don't think you your career follows the template of an academic you know, like you don't fit in the academic template which I love I love that so why not I mean there are many different ways I could try to talk about it but um, you know starting from graduate school I mean I did all of my degrees at the same institution University of South Florida and that's I, I understand the reasons why that's something that people encourage graduate students not to do. Um, But I was an older than traditional age student already in graduate school. I was lonely and recovering from some trauma in my life. And my family was nearby. My sister started having her babies. And I just said, I want to stay here. I was comfortable with the people I was working with. And uh, so I stayed. So there's that. Um, My first job was not a tenure track job. I um, (laughs) 
late in my studies, they discovered I had a, a brain tumor. And so that kind of threw things off a little bit. And after I had my brain surgery uh, in 1994, I was facing bankruptcy. And on a graduate student's salary, facing bankruptcy, trying to recover from craniotomy, it was all a bit much. And I just thought, I can't finish my degree right now. I need a job. And um, my advisor advised against it, but I, I took a job out of ASU. So I, I did long distance completion of the PhD, right? So that's another thing. Um, I stayed in non-tenure track jobs for three years at Arizona State University. And then finally, a colleague who had been in graduate school with me, um, one of my best friends, Rick McDonald, a medievalist, he reached out and said, hey, up at Utah Valley where we are hiring tenure track, and I know you've been kind of, you know, in a sort of a strange little vortex and you don't know which way it's going to go, why don't you apply? So finally got myself onto the tenure track after, you know, after a while. And in the meantime, I had flown back and, and completed and defended the dissertation. Um, that took a while. So um, these are just a few things. Uh, there are others right now, for example. I mean, I had tenure um, and I gave up my tenured position and that's not really very conventional, um, especially post-economic decline of 2008, right? And the ensuing tragedies that have unspooled. Um, but, you know, again, my family um, kind of came first and I needed to be here in Illinois with my family because of a variety of factors. And so um, I've been kind of spinning my wheels for a few years. Um, the book, thankfully, kind of kept me the book and before the book, digital filmmaking kind of kept me involved in in my academic profession, even as I was sort of uh, um, disoriented about what my career was and what it meant. Um, again, the priority was the family. So I was here for them to help them and to be with them. And um, fortunately, there were enough people who believed in me and wanted to support what I was doing that I was able to continue to do the work that I love doing. Um, one of them, of course, being Cheryl Ball, um, who's been um, just a tremendous colleague and mentor, really, um, and editress. Um, so these are a few things. I don't know if you want to jump in, but uh, those are some of the tangents. <laughs> what are you doing now? Right now, I am I'm doing two different I'm doing two different things. We're all doing 18 different things right now, but. I am an adjunct uh, teaching first year writing at the College of DuPage, which is an institution just very close to me here. Um, but I'm, I am teaching remotely like a lot of us. Thank goodness they decided to go for remote. And I'm also teaching a course called Information Structures um, in the Creative Media and Digital Cultures program out at Washington State, Vancouver. This is a program that Dini Grigar um, and John Barber kind of launched. I think Dini primarily. Um, and it's an amazing program. And I I was just sort of hanging out on LinkedIn one day and Dini had popped in and said, you know, just a general call that she needed someone to fill this class. And I, I wrote to her and we hopped on Zoom immediately and she hired me. So I'm, I'm teaching, so I'm adjuncting, I'm adjuncting, teaching two classes. And then I have a third one starting up at COD, like a 12 week class. And COD has just contacted me and said they want to give me a full schedule in spring. So you know, I'm I'm looking on the bright side and I'm grateful to be working. I mean, even folks who are tenured right now are are vulnerable. Um, there are institutions who've been just, you know, laying off and firing folks right and left, regardless of rank. So uh, I'm just grateful to be working and continuing in the field. I love teaching writing. I love teaching first year writing. I'm just I think I'm mission driven to do it because I flunked out of college on my first attempt. And when Me I, too. yeah. Oh, Hey, yeah. <laughs> kudos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you had to learn later how to be a student. Right. And writing was a huge part of that. So my, my Miss Aola was my, you know, um, community college helper. She kind of guiding me back into learning how to be a student and, it, it changed the course of my life profoundly and saved my life, really. I mean, it's I'm, it's not overly dramatic to say that. Um, I hear that it does sound like that, but it, it's true. <laughs> and so and so I like the idea of being able to help other students. It's one of my 
one, something I'm always looking out for in first year writing is, you know, where are those folks who look like they're, you know, just about to slip through the cracks? You know? and, and even those who aren't, you know, I want to encourage them and motivate them and, and help them to understand that they're doing well and they're on the right path, keep going, that sort of thing. And so I'm a big fan of teaching first year writing, but this information structures class I'm teaching out at WSU is a real big change for me, trying to treat it like an immersive story. I'm trying to kind of backtrack and say, well, I was around when the internet was sort of evolving. Yeah. Um, particularly with some force in academia. And uh, what has that meant for me? I'm trying to share my stories. I'm, I'm always kind of thinking maybe if I can step a little to the left of myself here and say, I'm, I'm just watching this uh, Dorothy Smith video about institutional ethnography. So I'm always when I'm when I'm teaching something like this course, I'm trying to think about well, what how did I go through it, right? And what was my experience? What were the questions I had about how information was circulating and 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 unspooling and you know creating material effects? Um, and so <laughs> I'm trying to get my students involved in telling their own stories. We're basing some of our work on Madeline Sorpier's um, Dear Data project, which recently got actually she had a, she had a co-author. You're going to have to dub me back in because I can't recall the name of her co-author. She, okay. yeah. uh, she had a co-author on that piece. Um, and uh, so I'm just trying to help my students think about what's going on in the moment um, with regard to information. So there, there's, oh my gosh, that's a huge umbrella. So we do some nuts and bolts. What are the guts of the Internet and how it works? And then we ask bigger questions about information right now. So we're the Dear Data Project is our way of looking at the pandemic and how information is flowing or not <laughs> about the pandemic. I'm going to stop here because I'm over-talking this answer. <laughs> That's okay. Well, it made me think, like, it was a great answer because it made me think, like, what are some of the the tools that rhetoric provides, you know, to, to take on a class like this and, and, and analyze or look at, examine data and, and the things that you are looking at? What, what tools have you found rhetoric provides? Well, I, uh, Madeline is a source of inspiration to me, uh -huh. and she does a lot of work with data visualization. So I find the rhetorical analysis of visual data um, to be not only illuminating, but just fascinating and and kind of fun. Um, I'm I am I you know I'm I'm a very visual uh, writer, thinker, learner, teacher. And um, that's probably the cosmetologist in me, because after I flunked out of college, that's what I did for eight years. I cut hair. Um, but yeah, so data visualization work, I think, is some of the most um, effective, affective, engaging um, and persuasive rhetorical tools for helping students understand their immersive experience um, in information structures and what and both the the range of choices they have and then the constraints on the choices they have. Um, so that was a big answer, but uh, what else might I say about that? I think also I'm using the frame of um, rhetorical ethics. I'm trying to get them to think about um, rhetorical ethics, and I'm really just introducing that term because there's so much that we have to do to 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 just sort of lay some foundations and talk about bits <laughs> and IP and DNS and 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 then we sort of scroll out and about the larger questions about who is you know who is um, controlling, sustaining, altering, manipulating information. How does that manifest in your life? Um, and what is your rhetorical obligation as a consumer and a producer of information in this interconnected, you know, um, rhetorical landscape that we inhabit when we're talking about the internet? And really, this class is focused on the internet. So your book is called Cruel Altruism, <laughs> uh, which is an excellent, excellent title. And um, it's about filmmaking and the rhetorical effects of, of filmmaking. Um, and, and when I was looking at your CV and I was looking, thinking about your book and reading your book, I, I noticed like there were three ways that I was thinking about this, these things coming together. Pedagogy, right, which is I know is extremely important to you based on the roles that you've served in 
um, during your career. And then production, okay? Like what are we producing and what are the elements of that production in terms of connecting to the writing process, if you will, right? Yeah. And then also creative endeavors or pursuits like filmmaking in terms of scholarly production that might count for something like tenure, right? right. Um, so those are the three things that I think we might, the three ways we might approach, right? The three dimensions we might approach talking about filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, does that sound good to you? Absolutely. All yeah. right. So when did you first, this is going to sound like the most cliche question. Okay. I would laugh if someone asked me this question, perhaps. <laughs> When did you first fall in love with uh, filmmaking and the movies? What was it? Was it a specific movie or star, maybe? The movies itself, it was it was noir. It was exactly. uh, it was Casablanca. It was, and then it was any other sort of um, black and white film from the you know 30s, 40s, 50s that I saw on Saturday morning movies. And you know, my sisters would get up early to watch Little Rascals, which just drove me up the wall. I know lots of people are big fans, but every time I hear I am the Barbara Saville, I want to scream. And they just it's like they revel in it. Um, but so I was waiting for, you know, for my chance with the TV, because at the time we had that one screen <laughs> uh, so I could watch old movies. Cinematic smoking was appealing to me. Unfortunately, that wasn't a great thing for a young child to be drawn to. But. Cinematic smoking just looked so slow and contemplative. And I was raised in just a chaotic family of five girls. And there was there was a lot of chaos in my house. And, and just the slow, deliberate pace of the delivery of dialogue. Um, the, way, the way a cigarette <laughs> could sort of slow down a scene in a strange way and sort of ground a person and reorient them to the space. And then in particular, I really always loved the the way that blinds were used, window blinds were used to cast like a sense of moral ambiguity on a character going through some thought process. As a kid, I didn't know that's what I was loving. Later, I, I realized that's what I was loving about that. Um, Bogart, Kate Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, um, Ava Gardner, uh, Oh my gosh, what's her name? Barbara Stanwyck, Betty Davis. Come on. And now I sound like Madonna doing my song. But <laughs> but these are these old black and white movies that I just uh, I was drawn to, and um, I, I've never really t taken a ton of time to figure out why, except for those few things that I mentioned there. And I do write about that. I gave a paper. I forget when, but um, oh, it was uh, it was 2007, and at, at um, Four C's and a huge ballroom. I was on this panel with Ann Wysocki and Jeff Sirk. Oh my gosh. And uh, talking about film. And I began to explore this early love um, of cinema. So I did write about it and talk about it. And it is in chapter three, if you wanted to, you know, follow up and look at that. Um, but later there were other things. Later there were other films. But eventually, let me, let me fast forward and say that when it came to production, um, it was my work with Sundance that made me decide. I, I, I always wanted to be involved in film. I, like many wannabe actors, imagine giving my Oscar speech. I, you know, this was a big feature of growing up. And um, uh, but when I started working with Sundance, and I was uh, the liaison between the talent that came with the film and the audience, and I got to talk routinely with actors and directors and producers and and um, and I'd see them go up on stage and I, I, you know, I'd stand off to the side where they were giving their answers in a Q&A. And half the time, it's like a 20 year old filmmaker. And a very common question an audience member will ask is, how did you get what you know, what made you want to make this film? You know, why were you so drawn to make this film? And then and, and there was a very frequent answer, especially a documentarian would say, oh, you know, it just the story just came to me. It just sort of fell in my path and I had to make it which sounds very magical and mystical. And like, as a person who strategically wants to do things, it's like, that's not an answer. Um, but then that did actually later happen to me at the Four C's one year when I stumbled by 
the meeting of elders. I don't know what it's called. It's the big like meeting of the, you know what I mean? Like the council. Yeah. of elders. And it's like the last day. It's after all the panels are done and they meet to talk about business and promote policy and all that. And I was up early having coffee. Mike was still sleeping and I, I stumbled by and I, I, I heard Chuck Bazerman in there. He had gone up to the mic to talk about this plan. This was 2003 or 2004. It was a lead up to the war. And he was representing the Rhetoricians for Peace and they wanted to do this teach-in of Orwell's 1984. And uh, as I was listening to him, he's got this great cinema. He's got a radio voice. He's got an amazing radio voice. And, and he's a very eloquent speaker. And I was just thinking, oh, where's my camera? Like, this is the thing that I want to, like, if we actually take this up as the four C's and do this international teaching of 1984 as our, as a form of activism in the moment, um, this is my story. This has fallen into my path. I've got to find the money. That's another thing filmmakers would tell the audience. I'll say, how'd you fund it? And they say, I just found the money. And that's another thing that someone who's trying to strategize says, you know, bullshit too, because they're like, what, what do you mean you found the money? I wish I could find something. And then you do, and then you do, right? So I got back to my campus and I started writing proposals to the various entities who might fund, right? So my um, departmental chair, my college dean, um, the program of interdisciplinary studies, the ethics program, anyone who seemed like they might be interested in supporting something like this. And I got enough money to buy a decent little prosumer camera and a copy of Final Cut Pro, neither of which I knew how to use at all. And I'm still, you know, I mean, I cringe at some of the things I see that I've done because the skill set is not there, but you develop it by doing it, right? So I just I just did it. I showed up and shot footage and tried to make stuff. That's awesome. And I think that we'll we'll get to the we'll get to this in a second. But let me start. Let's 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 start with when did you start working with Sundance and how did you get involved? Okay, so we moved to Utah in 1999. My husband and I. I'd been at ASU for three years. On on a I started as an instructor and then two years as a lecturer. Moved to Utah, um, and I think it was in the year 2000. I said to Mike. Or it was, it made, yeah, it was January 2000. I said, you know, science is coming up. We should go. And he said, we can't go to that. It, that's just for industry people. And I said, Mike, what are you talking about? No, it's not. People go and they buy tickets and they, you know, there there are audiences. And he's like, oh, I just thought it was reporters and and producers and and uh, you know, uh, marketing people. And I said, no, it's not. So we bought some tickets. We found out the process um, and bought some tickets and we went up to a screening. We went to two or three screenings, but the one that we went to that was up at the Sundance Resort, which is not in Park City, but it's it's at the original Sundance where like the land is that Robert Redford bought and where he has his home. And and um, there's one screening room there. And we went into went to give our tickets to the um, volunteer and the volunteer was this guy named Tyler, who was an adjunct who I supervised as the writing program coordinator down at Utah Valley. And I was like, Tyler, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I volunteer every year. I just love it. I said, how do you how do you get into doing this? And so he told me. And then that year we we quickly um, got ourselves application and they accepted us. Um, we volunteered the first year, just taking tickets. And then uh, in the fall of the next year, I got a call from the volunteer coordinator and they said, we think you'd be a good theater manager. And I said, really? I do, too. <laughs> Put me up in a no. They did. They 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 yeah. they, they. And so uh, I started as a theater manager. Mike was my assistant theater manager. Uh, in 2001 or 2002, maybe it was 2002. I think was when we began managing. And so every year after that, we just go back. What's a theater manager do at Sundance? Oh, it's so great for someone like me because our roles are so perfect. A theater manager is in charge of the big picture. So as a filmmaker and a visual person and a conceptual person and a person interested in aesthetics and um, and the vibe and the mood of a scene, it's perfect for me. Also, I lo- I'm really supportive of Sundance's, you know, sort of vision and mission of supporting creative vision, especially independent creative vision, right? So a theater manager is in charge of uh, sort of being like a brand ambassador, making sure that the that all of these um, all of these uh, you know tonal notes are hit in how we in how we 
create a mood in the room and how we interact with the patrons and the filmmakers. Um, uh, my chief duty is to make sure the films start on time, which sounds kind of, kind of anti, you know, big picture, but it, it's the biggest picture. You have to make sure that it's, because the schedule's very tight. And, um, and then uh, the really fun part for me is that, you know, being somewhat of a wannabe and, and, and really enjoying creative people, being around creative people, especially successful ones. I mean, I don't mind. I like a celebrity. Uh, if a filmmaker comes with the film, if an actor comes with the film, if any, any sort of entourage, so any entourage who shows up with the film, I, I greet them and I sort of make sure that they're comfortable, get them water, whatever. Um, we organize how I'm going to introduce them and who will be coming up for the Q&A or if they'll be coming up for the Q&A. And then um, if they're going to be watching the film, if they're not going to watch the film, I, I can either find a place for them. We do have a green room, kind of. <laughs> uh, usually I tell them going down to the owl bars is a, is a better way to go. Um, but yeah, that's it. I, I introduce the films. I introduce and facilitate the Q&A and that's some of the most fun stuff some of the things I love most about this I'm going to say just real quickly because Shireen Nastat is in my mind right now because of this program she's an Iranian I want to say I hope I get that right Iranian artist and she came with her film one year and she was so 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 nervous and everyone on the board was there sitting in the back row including Mr. Redford and she was just, it was, it was terrible. She was just, her nerves were, and I was standing there with her in the dark, waiting for the, you know, trailer or screener, whatever, to finish. So I would go up and introduce her. And she was having a hard time breathing. She was really, she was just, and she looked, and I, I kind of came, I was standing by the side of her, and I came around in front of her, and I, I kind of gently took her hands. I looked her in the eye and said, Shireen, take a moment. This is your film at Sundance. This is not the time to fall apart. Take a breath. Take a breath and enjoy it and appreciate it. And she's like, you're right. You're right. You're right. She kind of collected herself and she said, I was grateful for it. She said, you're really good. That that really helped. And I was, I, I knew it did because I could see, I know sometimes someone has to just go, Ch -ch -ch. you can't slap the filmmaker, but you know what I mean? You, you have to yeah. get yourself together, collect yourself. Yeah. You're going to waste this time. You're going to waste this glorious moment on your fears and anxieties. The film is done, right? And everyone's here to love it. That's a great thing about a festival audience, too, is that at the festivals, they're there to love it, right? So things that they might not love if they were seeing it in, in a you know routine screening out in the wild, <laughs> they're going to treat a little differently at the festival, especially if the filmmaker's there. So I love that aspect of it because that supports the work, too, right? If I can help that filmmaker go up on stage and, and have a more um, effective, commanding, pleasant, delightful disposition, people are going to want to like the film more. It's all it's all serving, you know, to support the film and to support the filmmaker um, in their endeavor. And um, yeah, so that's what I do. I, I, other things like if patrons have issues, I sometimes step in, but usually my volunteers are dealing with that first or my assistant theater managers dealing with that. I just, this is my main duty is caring for the, the people who come with the film because all that actually supports the film. So I know you're a filmmaker and a scholar and all these other things that you've done. Are you, but you're also an actor. Yes. An act, are you acting right now? Uh, Have you done anything recently? I'm always acting, but um, I, let's see, how do I answer that? Um, I mostly do. We don't want to talk about it. We don't have to talk. About it. I want to. I, are you kidding me? You ask want to be actor if she wants to talk about her. Uh, <laughs> read the room, Charles. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yes, um, I have been working since I moved here to Chicago. Um, I got myself hooked up with this organization called Four Star Casting, and they do a lot of the casting for. Um, for all the shows that are shot here. And there are so many of them, right? There are like Chicago PD, Chicago Fire, all, all the Chicago Med. Um, the ones I, I worked for, I started on Empire. So I started working as a, we call ourselves background artists. You know, the layperson's term is extra. Um, but there is artistry to it. Um, if you've ever seen a bad extra, you come to maybe appreciate it's it's very it's it's 
really challenging. I've, I've done a bit of writing about it. I kind of love it because it is acting. It allows me to be on the set, which is a, an environment I like. I like the energy of a lot of creative people working together. Um, and some of them have their hair on fire and some of them are cool as can be. But, you know, all together we we make it work. I think it's a, a good metaphor for the moment in terms of what we're all trying to do to keep it together in terms of our pedagogy, in terms of producing work like you're producing with the podcast, um, you know, showing up, <laughs> showing up with that willingness to to support the, the bigger picture. So uh, I started on Empire. I did. Um, and since then, I've done some other things. Um, I'm still waiting to get my line. I still haven't got my line. But the closest I came uh, was last year I worked on a new show called Next. And this is going to be, it's coming out soon. I think it's coming out in October, maybe November. It stars John Slattery, who was, um, you remember him from Mad Men? Is yeah, the, the white haired guy from uh, White Hair Guy, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's uh, all I got. <laughs> he's been in a million things, but that's how people mostly know him. Uh, he's good in, um, the movie about the Boston Globe, Spotlight. I did I see that? I'm not sure I saw that one. But I will have to look for it. I'm always you looking for more movies. You I, saw it. Maybe I did. I don't know. Um, won an Oscar for Best Picture. Oh well, then I probably saw, I don't see every Best Oscar picture. That's fair. I haven't either. Okay. I don't. I I I try, but I can't always do it. I'll cut some of this out since I sound kind of. <laughs> I like it. It's very human. Okay, um, yeah, I agree. Cool. Next was cool because the day I went to shoot on Next, um, I I knew I was going to be someone in a hospital. I was either going to be a nurse because you don't really know. You you know the general nature of the scene. You know where you need to go, what time you need to go there, and what kind of outfits you need to bring. So I, I was maybe going to be a patient. I was maybe going to be like a person bedside with a patient. Who knows? But I showed up and they made me a patient. It was glorious. I had brought my bunny slippers and uh, just some like sweatpants. And they gave me a hospital gown to wear. I did not have to wear a bra. I did not have to wear like a suit. Because quite often I go and I get like background positions where I'm wearing a suit or like a club outfit, which is tight. And you're on set for like 14 hours. And it's like, ugh. So this was like wonderful. I did not have to wear any makeup. In fact, several times the makeup lady kept coming back over and wiping because I would sneak on some lip gloss because I hate not having lip gloss. I, I get very dry and I'm vain and I'm like, I'll just put a little bit on. But she kept coming over. <laughs> you could see it. You're supposed to look sick. But anyhow, the point is uh, I got to play a patient. Not only all these great things, no bra, wearing bunny slippers, no makeup. I got to sit in a wheelchair the whole day too. So it was great. I like, I was not on set for 14 hours with my feet aching and all that. Um, and at one point, this is what I'm, all of this is leading up to the fact that I think it's the closest to an acting gig. Um, I got because in the scene, I could see where the camera was and, um, and they had, they had the shot um, opening with um, background doing their thing. And the background consisted of this woman, my acting partner, uh, another background artist who does a lot of work locally. And she was sort of going over my medical records with me and essentially telling me I was going to live after all. So I got to do one of these, you know, oh, you know, I, guess, I, I mean, I like to think I didn't overdo it. But but in the midst of this, several of the crew members started like kind of really looking like paying attention. And a couple of them told me later that they thought I was a really good actor and that they they thought I should be in the scene properly. And I'm like, tell the director. But I didn't really say that. But maybe I did. I might have. But then also I caught this other thing happening. And I mentioned this because you you you, you and our viewers, our uh, listeners here might want to tune in when next actually opens, because I saw the director at one point. They were all in love with my bunny slippers. Uh, several crew members were like, I'm going to steal those. I love those. And they are pretty great. Um, and the director, at one point, I was sitting still in the chair before the shot. And he was like down at ground level with the camera. And you could, and he was getting like a super tight shot of my bunny slippers. So my great moment of acting the joy of knowing I'm not going to be killed by this disease might not make the cut. But my bunny slippers are going to be in there. Uh and and that's just one of those fun things that happen. Um, 
so I have been doing, I've just been doing background. I, and I don't, because of the, because of the commitments of my academic job, I can't really at this point, or I haven't really at this point pursued getting an agent and trying to go out and get roles with lines. I do literally pathetically, and this is, this is going to be a great segue to the book. Um, in a in a relation of cruel optimism, I do show up at the set quasi hopeful that today's going to be the day they're going to give me a line because this does happen, right? If, if they, right. Quite often, backgrounds just doing their thing, and the director will say, "I'm going to pull this guy, you know, and here I want you to say this," and then they have to Taft Hartley you, and you get into the into the union, and you, you know things can change, um, but that hasn't happened. <laughs> like to join charles in the big rhetorical podcast the podcast is booking for next season now the big rhetorical podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond this record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric writing studies and technical communication as well as adjacent fields do you have a new book coming out are you hitting the job market this cycle The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. First of all, I love the arrangement of the book and uh, chapters and the names. Like the the first chapter is hope, right? Like I I love that so much, and I think it's appropriate not only for this discussion but the book. So, in your own words, what is the main argument of the book, and why is it important? Okay. Well, the main argument is the, uh, is that um, digital filmmaking. Uh, even radically DIY, messy, imperfect digital filmmaking, such as the kinds of things that I've done for several years, um, can function as rhetorical pedagogy. And one of the primary ways it does that is through the affective intensities that are activated and sustained in the process of shooting your film, editing your film, um, revising your film, screening your film, publishing your film, Etc. So um, whether or not you're a person like me who was drawn to film at a young age, um, most of us are aware uh, that we are immersed in uh, cultures that are highly mediated by um, images. And I use, uh, you know, I, I use the frame of affect because of Brian Masumi's now famous sort of proclamation about the primacy of the affective and image reception, right? So when we receive an image, we have this affective experience that can be tremendously intense and it can, it can happen um, in a way that is sort of prior to a linguistic register of what that intensity is. So before I maybe 
intellectually can say this image is joyful, I have an embodied affective experience um, that is powerful and um, full of potential and can it can be liberating, it can be constraining depending on the nature of the image and, and my frame for approaching it. Um, but pedagogically speaking, I find that that, that space of potential um, sensitizes us um, to our immersive experience in rhetoricity. Yeah. Well, what are some <laughs> of the... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that was a mouthful. Um, but uh, I will say I, I, one thing I really like about using the frame of affect is that it echoes and mirrors my own experience of working as a filmmaker and working with film in the classroom and as a scholar. I, I enjoy my life in academia, but once I started working more with film, I found that I was feeling more about all of it. And not just, not just joyful, giddy feelings, you know, because I got to do some artsy thing, but I was more sensitive to a wider range of, of, of affective experience in my academic life. I felt more connected to it, more devoted to it. And I think I also learned more about, um, about how I needed to, um, to be aware of my affective experience. Um, because I haven't always been too strategic about my feels. <laughs> I, 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 put, I put a lot out there and I, uh, I unabashedly, especially early in my career, if anyone goes back and looks at the WPA listserv, I was on that thing all the time, feeling and emoting about all the things. And I'm not sure it was always a, a, a really sort of um, productive approach to joining the community of scholars. So I think the question I want to ask is about bringing filmmaking into the writing classroom. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want to ask the question, what do instructors need to be thinking about? Instead, I wonder if we can kind of approach that topic by asking, what are some of the successes and perhaps some of the failures that you've encountered bringing filmmaking into the writing classroom? Uh, first of all, just helping students to to analyze film rhetorically sensitizes them to the rhetorical dimensions of that text. Right. And that opens up a lot of cultural studies oriented work toward the different kinds of texts they're encountering in their lives. Right. So if we only do rhetorical analysis with political speeches, then that gets compartmentalized in a way that doesn't really um, reverberate for our students. I mean, for some students, not, not, you know, some, some see those connections directly and they, and they are able to kind of code switch and, you know, transpose that learning. Um, but I've heard from students that I've never considered looking at this video as anything other than entertainment. Right? And I'm like, well, that's interesting because there's a whole lot of misogyny in this video. Let's, let's have a chat. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so there's that. And right now, I guess I'm talking more from the angle of, of analysis. But uh, in terms of production, I've heard again and again from students about the value of the work we've done um, with digital filmmaking. And one of the things that I do that that's easiest to do um, is is to have students make a creative, just like a 30 second to one minute video that corresponds with their one-page micro-theme, um, which is sort of a problem-posing um, speculative piece of writing. It's based on John Bean's micro-theme, and it sort of says, here's a problem, here's how I'm interested, here's why it's problematic, and here's why it would be important if we thought about it. And so it's very conceptual. I don't, I ask them not to try to argue, to come to a conclusion, because it's really only a page, and if it's a real problem, what can you do in a page? You can just kind of begin to open it up and explore. And so um, with this hopeful disposition toward inquiry, I asked them to take their camera, uh, 
and and begin recording something that resonates with the feelings they're feeling as they think through these questions. Um, some students get very literal. I've had students do very specific forms of stop motion animation that sort of illustrates the thing that they're writing about. I've had other students, uh, the ones that I tend to like more are a little more abstract, um, but not too difficult to do. So um, I forget what this one, I had this one student who was writing about something and I can't recall, but it was very moody and it was very intense and, and she didn't know how she wanted to render it as a, as a short video. And I, I talked to her about the different states of clouds in the sky. I, to me, it, it was just sort of a, a go-to back pocket, <laughs> um, easy way for using an element to represent different states. And, um, and she did, and she did this beautiful job. And she, when she presented, she gushed about how wonderful she felt about the work because, um, I mean, and I hate to use that one as an example because I gave her that idea, but she did it. She went out and did it. She went out and earned those those feelings and that that feeling of accomplishment. Um, and uh, I notice a sense of um, enhanced desire to participate with the class, uh, to share the work. Um, so I, I mean, how many times have we had students on, on an oral presentation day and it's it's like <gasps> who's going to go first? And it's like crickets, you know. <laughs> Um, but with the with the short videos on the day when we present, yeah, I, I do kind of hype it up. I make it a big deal and I'm very, um, you know, there's lots of applause and there's lots of um, I, I bring some sodas in the back and popcorn like an idiot. But that's that's a thing that I do. <laughs> um, I don't know. Now I'm kind of trailing off. Uh, what else do I want to say about it? I, oh, this. Uh, I think that when students are working in the classroom with film, they learn to develop a greater actual uh, material, like a, a felt sense of, of what audience is and what audience needs. Many of our students don't like writing um, for reasons we don't have time for in this podcast. Uh, and, and so when we talk about audience, when we talk about writing, um, it can be very constraining. Uh, and I don't think it, it's always very successful at helping students to make the kinds of revisions that we hope they're going to make. But when a student's working on a short film, they know they're going to present, especially after they've seen some good stuff, because I have some good models from former students and from some short filmmakers that I admire. Um, the the devotion to the craft, the devotion to the revision cycle, it, it's it's noticeably more intense and more um, productive. And I think that's because they want to make something great, not only for themselves, but they, they want their peers to, to be impressed. This is not to say that these things don't happen with print text, but they happen differently as I've experienced them uh, and maybe more intensely. Disclaimer, I may be reading that intensity because I want to read that intensity, right? So, I mean, that's there too. Um, but I've seen it. I've witnessed it. Um, I've discussed this with um, filmmaking scholars and practitioners, Alexander Hidalgo, I think of, and Alex, Alex uh, Juhas, um, who've all sort of articulated very similar notions. So, I don't think I'm alone in this in this notion you're not and i think that that's a, a perfect segue into thinking about how films are viewed by the academy and how they can work as texts uh within that institution and and within the different disciplines that produce them so i wonder what are your thoughts on how filmmaking is viewed within i guess rhetoric and maybe based on your own experiences in academia that's a good question I will say um, I've had great experiences at screenings at conferences and I've had other experiences at screenings that were, you know, just fine. Um, I, let's see. Well, I called the book cruel autorism. <laughs> so there's a hint. Uh, 
Um, I, you know, Lauren, Lauren Berlant's concept of cruel optimism is, is about the system of relations that we enter into or, uh, and, and throughout our lives where we, um, the things that we attach to, the things that we, you know, admire, love, cathect, um, they can become obstacles to our flourishing. Those are her words, obstacles to our flourishing. It's such a great phrase, right? And, um, and when you decide that you're going to just make films in the field of rhetoric, and maybe not a lot of other people are doing it, or the people who are doing it are really well-funded and they, they have these, you know, in these expansive labs and they have audio technicians and they have people, they have, you know, cadres of graduate students helping with the productions. And, uh, you know, so, so you've got, you've got that kind of productive activity. And then you've got you sort of a person myself who says, I'm going to try to do it myself. I don't have those other things, but I'm going to try. Um, and so there's, there are quality distinctions. There are aesthetic distinctions. There are people who wonder why you're doing it because the path to success, again, going back to that conversation about the conventional template, the conventional template says, you know, you need to be publishing in rhetoric review and, you know, uh, and three C's and college English and all sorts of other places. And, and you need to have these, um, you know, you need to have lots of quantitative analyses of what's going on with student writing in your classes. And, um, you know, it's a very different thing to say, I, I want to try to make an interesting rhetorical text with film that demonstrates um, the value of doing it. Because a, lo a lot of the short films I've made are about what is the value of doing this kind of work? Um, and I try to highlight those learning moments, if you will, um, in the films that I make. So I guess it's various, you know. I, I think I recall it, um, I want to say 2006, Penn State, at the Penn State Conference, I screened a short film. And, oh, my gosh, Lily Bridwell-Bowles. She was sitting next to me, right? And I go up, Sue Wells just finishes her talk, and I go up to show my short film, and um, and it was all about film. It was an argument for filmmaking as rhetorical work capable of serving as rhetorical pedagogy. We should be doing more of this. Um, we should we should, you know, not to the exclusion of print production, but in addition to right? because of all these additional ways that our rhetorical sensitivities are activated. So I made this short film and I screened it. And uh, and as I was done, I was very nervous about the reception because they look good high profile rhetoricians here. And I'm really calm, right? There's rhetoric and composition and they inform one another. But most of my work is really in composition. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's high profile rhetoric scholars there. And I'm feeling a little out of my depth, um, but I got accepted. And so I did the thing, I showed the film and I went back to my chair and I sat down and Lillian Bridwell Bowles had written me a little note on an orange post-it that I still have. And it says something like, we're with you in this. You know, you're, you're, you, it's something to the effect that you don't need to argue so hard for this. We want to do this. We, we support this. And um, just gave me such a moment of, of relief to have her, just that private little, little nudge. Um, I, I think that there are a lot of us who'd like to be doing this kind of work, but there are all kinds of reasons more of us aren't, right? Um, because it doesn't lead to easy success. It is very difficult. It's very time consuming to try to make something that feels to you like art <laughs> and also feels to you like it might serve some scholarly purpose. That's crossing a lot of roads. <laughs> that's crossing it. And, and, uh, and the time it takes is, is immense. Um, and then I was, you know, teaching four classes and grading paper. And so, so it's uh, it's not something everyone wants to take on. I think a lot of people scratch their head and wonder why. Why isn't Bonnie just publishing something like this that'll be make her life easier? I, mean, I don't know if anyone actually thinks explicitly about me and my choices, but I speaking to your question. <laughs> um, so yeah, I actually had a colleague say to me recently something along the lines of, um, you know, it was expressing respect for my work. Then he said, you know. 
I wish I could just sort of make fun little creative things and just show those at conferences, but I have to blah, blah, blah. Again, I don't think he said it in a disparaging way. And I actually said back, I don't think that's all I'm doing. I actually think that I'm doing more than just trying to make creative things. I, I see it as, and I, you know, these are the things I've been describing in terms of um, rhetorical praxis. And, uh, and he said, oh, no, 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 that's not what he meant. But that's what I heard. <laughs> so I don't know. A lot of it's guesswork. Uh, a lot of it's what I read. Um, and this is where I try to situate my timeline with other scholars who've been trying to do work with film in the academy. Because I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure what people think about this kind of work. But that's the truth. Um, so, yeah, I've said enough. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You said earlier that you, you practice your Oscar speech. Who do you think first in your Oscar speech? Oh, my God, you're going to laugh. Oh, that's such a great question. I will tell you, I don't know the answer to that right now, but sometimes I talk my way into my answers. So I will tell you that way back when I was a hairdresser in 1984, I won the um, state of Florida haircutting contest. I won second place. I was robbed, but I won second place. And at the time I was a born again Christian. And the first person I thanked was my Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember as I was doing it, I thought this is so corny, but but I'm a Christian now, so I have to do this. And um, I think back and I just laugh. I don't think I would do that now. It's not that I'm no longer a Christian, but I just don't think I would necessarily start there. I might thank, I might thank God first. Just, just a more general term. I think also, though, oh, my God, what a great question. Oh, God, I could be really corny like Tilda Swinton and say, I would thank the cinema. She just gave a big speech in Venice. You know, she won a Lifetime Achievement Award and she won a big speech and she was like, cinema, cinema, She cinema. should win every Lifetime Achievement she Award. You should. And I foresee many others for her. Um, I, I think I would probably, honest to God, thank the director first because, hmm. because that person has to have faith in you and that person has to guide you and make sure you look good and make sure your performance is what is the best it can be. Um, they have the sign off on whether or not you're going to be participating in that work. So I think it'd probably have to be the director first. And then probably it's hard to say that because Mike should be first because Mike's been with me through everything and, and you don't want to Hillary swank anybody, but uh, you know, I, so I would, I would get to Mike, but I think I'd start with the director. Yeah. Excellent. So looking back at your career as a filmmaker, a filmmaker in the Academy, what are the things you're most proud of? Oh, boy. That's such a great question, Charles. Um, the first the first short film I made called I'm Like Professional, uh, when that screened in San Francisco at Four Seas, I my heart was shaking. I could feel it. I'm not I'm not. I mean, it was a literal I could feel it was like a palpitation. I was so nervous about this it, and I had worked so hard on it. And. Um, and it had involved an, an attempt to tell the story of this particular filmmaker, M. Strange, and and um, our communications eventually broke down, so it became a, a sort of a case study of three different DIY filmmakers. And I felt so much for DIY filmmaking because I was in it, and I sort of felt like I was becoming a part of it. And then to be able to share that with my academic community, who had been, frankly, very supportive. I'd been blogging about it. I'd been updating and using social media. And I had lots of people just cheering me on because this was my first, it was my second effort, but it was really the one that felt more professional than what I had made with the 1984 plus 20 project film that I made, which was my first effort. So when I screened that, at, that, that was the proudest thing was when I screened that film at, at um, Four C's, uh, everyone was there. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was embarrassing. If it had been terrible, it would have been so bad that like Jeff Sirk was there and Liz Losh and Cheryl was on the panel with me. And just all these scholars that I admire, I've admired their work and they were like there for me. Right. I mean, obviously they were there for Cheryl and they were there for who was the other person on that panel. Oh gosh, I'm going to forget. But, uh, but the cool thing was that I thought there were, you know, I, it, it was built in to be kind of humorous and self-effacing, even as it was also kind of, 
applauding DIY efforts. And they were laughing at all the right places, laughing like out loud, not a little like breaking into laughter and um, sort of clapping and commenting. And it was like, it was almost like a midnight movie. Like there was so much energy in the room. And I was just sort of off to the side, kind of crouched down because I didn't want to be in the way and I didn't want to go back behind because I didn't want to be in the way of the screening. It was, it was really one of the greatest moments of my life. It, it was just feeling that appreciation for this thing I'd worked so hard on. And, um, and especially that thing, which was marking my effort to say, I can, I can do this. <laughs> this is a professional practice to do this kind of thing. So it felt very affirmational and um, mimosas were had immediately thereafter. <laughs> what else do you want to mention? Yeah. What else do you want? What else do you want listeners to know about filmmaking, writing classroom, things that we didn't cover that you think are important? Okay. Well, most of the folks who are listening are rhetoric scholars. And like I tell my students, on the first day of every writing class, you already know everything you need to know about rhetoric. We're just going to help you know that you know it. We're going to reactivate it. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you say that because I, I don't, you know, you never know how a rhetoric scholar is going to take that comment. Um, but I, I, I say it because I do believe it's true because we're immersed and, and we're already practiced. Um, and uh, so I, I say to my students, I'm going to help you reactivate and sort of reanimate this knowledge so that it's it's a it's strategic and it's a set of tools instead of just this thing that you, you know, organically do. Um, I believe and my experience has been that when you make short films uh, as a scholar or with a group of students in a classroom, um, you 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 honor that knowledge. You That knowledge becomes more obvious and apparent. Um, sometimes one of the things I love is when you find a mis- something that seems like a mistake in, a, in an editorial move, and then you look at it more closely and you see that, no, there was wisdom in that. Like my rhetorical knowledge, almost Ouija board-like, kind of guided me to make that decision. And I didn't intend to, but look how it actually, form and content kind of works. And I explored a couple of those instances in some discussions in the book. Um, But you discover things about just how much you know, just how much rhetorical knowledge you have um, when you're making a short film. And I think that part of the reason it happens sort of technomagically in that way is because you're so involved, you're so immersed that you sort of get into this kind of flow zone that... um, you know, most writers uh, have experienced it as writers, but as filmmakers, you experience it differently. I, I, and it may be more for me because of my disposition to, to the visual and to multimodality in maybe more intense way. I contend that many of our students are intensely multimodal. And so to give them that environment for discovering and rediscovering what they know about rhetoric um, can be really tremendously productive. Bonnie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I am so honored that you selected me, and I can't wait to hear it. And I hope we get to see each other soon, and we can um, clink a mimosa, and I can look into your blue eyes through our shared cheap lenses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. We, you know, we really, we really don't live that far away from each other. I know we're too close. We need to, but you know, until things COVID, you know, uh, yeah, it'll happen. It'll happen. for joining me on this 50th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. It was a real treat, and I'm glad that we were able to make it happen and for the conversation to to debut as the 50th episode. If you want to be a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, 
Fill out a form on our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at TheBigRet. Leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. And vote. Vote. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically.